The Urban Broadcast Collective brings together the best podcasts on cities and urban life. Subscribe to us on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. This must be the place. And we're actually standing today in the township of Clunes. You're listening to Elizabeth Taylor and one of the featured authors at the Clunes Book... What's it called? Book Fair Festival? Clunes Book Town. Book Town Festival, David Nichols. How'd you go, David? Uh, I was reasonably happy with how things went. I was lucky to have uh, an empathetic uh, interviewer in uh, Keir Reeves, Professor Keir Reeves. And uh, he he read... um, I think up to about page 478 of the book. That's what he said. And um, uh, yeah, it was really, it was a really nice event, and it's it's great being here. It's just a, it's a, I guess people might need some people might need the whole event explained, yeah. and maybe in explaining that we can divert their attention from the fact that my book has bugger all to do with yeah, the idea. things that we normally discuss in um, in this podcast. So Clunes is town, a town is sort of in Ballarat or Goldfields town. We're actually standing in the street that was, to many people, uh, well, is still basically known as the street from Mad Max, where they, you know, where the bikies go, I think. But uh, the town has a annual book, book, book town. I think you know more about it than I do, David. Uh, Sounds like it. Well, I'm going to just totally make it up. It seems like for one weekend every year, this town um, is given over to a festival of booksellers and book signings and talks on the topics of books, some of which are related to history and place, but some of which are fiction. Um, I can see it's sort of part sponsored by Federation University, which um, I guess used to be Ballarat University, right? What else can we say about Queen's Book Town? So I think that the idea is that it was uh, somewhat uh, a revival scheme for Clunes. Uh-huh. It's like something to get people to come to Clunes because it's it's always been or it's long been known as a very attractive place. It's a mm. it's a beautiful town. It's a beautiful like eighteen uh, sixties eighteen seventies town with with a main street that is really um, you know fits that bill. I think almost everything is is from that kind of era, and it's a big it's a nice big wide main street and, and stuff. So it's an attractive place, but um, they needed to. Uh, they needed to attract people, and this is one of the things that that does that. How long has it been going for you reckon? The the the, the book book town, town thing. Yeah. Uh, yes, yeah, it's, it's it's within a decade. Yeah. One other a strange thing about Clunes that that we heard here with the band playing is the Wesley College band. Is that Clunes has a, I think for a, maybe a bit longer than that, 10, 15 years, has had a campus of Wesley College out uh, here for year nines. So that's why the band's playing here. Right. As I understand it, not being an expert on private schools, but they have special camps where Year 9 students go to sort of work out their youthful exuberance and Wesley College is in Clunes. So some of the uh, attendees are wearing that uniform and as also just a guess, but some of these stores, like Provador stores and stuff, are to cater to those parents. But um, otherwise, Clunes, why would you come to Clunes? Not to be mean about it. They do have a, a house made out of glass bottles. <laughs> it's nice. It's beautiful. It's cold. Yeah. Come here for the cold. I came here in summer once and went to the pool. Yeah. <laughs> it's all right. And, uh, well, I mean, I think even when Booktown's not operating, it does have a higher 
high proportion of bookshops as well. Oh, yeah. So a few of these places are always bookshops. Yep. Uh, and so it's 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 embracing that that idea. So secondhand bookshops are, um, which uh, amusingly, I was reading about the TV show Black Books. You know that show? Oh yeah. And the guy that that conceived of that show said he's found the idea of secondhand bookshops sort of implicitly hilarious because it's always a way to lose money to open a secondhand bookshop. <laughs> but um, I don't I don't know if that's that's true around here. It seems to be. I mean, it's obviously it's you know it's popular. There's there's a, there's a lot of. I read like eighteen thousand people come. Yeah. Yeah. Just a, also a plug for Clunes is that Andrew and I came here on the train, which was reopened the Ballarat to Maryborough line. Um, only a few years ago, so right. that I assume is part of like the revival of Queens. Yeah, yeah. You can go Ballarat, Creswick, Queens, Talbot, Maryborough for people wanting a day out on the train. When um, Federation University have a they have a strong association with this uh, with this festival, and um, they they're polling people. They have a they have this kind of hard hardline attitude to uh, to finding out what people you know how people experience the thing. So when you leave. Someone in a Federation University uniform is going to follow you and say, "Are you going home now?" <laughs> and the way that they phrase it is sort of almost like it's almost threatening. But so you it's, sort of feel compelled to say, "No, no, I just left something in my car." Yeah, yeah, or, or like, why, why, why do you want to do you want to come? You know, I just it's just really it's, it seems just that little bit personal and odd, but but it's fine. So I think we're now going to go back in time, because this is going to be our introduction, back in time to your author session uh, on you. one of the stages at Clunes Book Fair. As you say, Thanks it's not got exposure. a lot to do with uh, our usual topics of place and so on. Actually, I'll do a quick... I was going to ask a question at the front. But, but you failed to. Yeah, I feel... Okay. Because you had one question, and then I feel like Kia felt that no one else would come up, so he thought I'd just round, you know, round it off. My question was going to be more of... So I try and make it podcast relevant. Are there any bands in the book that are um, from regional Victoria or Clunes or anything like that? Oh, geez. Uh, regional Victoria. Regional Victoria. God. Nick Cave. Nick Cave. Oh, yeah, he's from, like, Warrac- Warracknabeel. Um Yeah, sort of, semi. <laughs> but, but, um... Not a strong theme, then. In regional Victoria, no. Regional I don't, Australia? Regional Australia, yeah, yeah. Well, look at, um... Uh, like Dave Graney, like the Moodists, the genesis of the Moodists is Mount Gambier. Oh, yeah. uh, I'm just trying to think, like within the, you know, my, my mind always immediately goes to Spiderbait, yeah. uh, who are from um, Finley. Finley. Yeah. But uh, they're, the they're outside the, the scope of the book. Mm-hmm. And um, so I know that something is going to occur to me. Uh, I'm glad I didn't ask you in front of everyone now. Well, yeah, I am too. Um, there are a few, you know, there are people from, there are Newcastle bands and there are Wollongong bands, but they're cities, they're not really yeah. regional. Yeah. Uh, and the Canberra bands. Uh, but, yeah, no, maybe not. I think that probably to get any kind of critical mass in your audience, you have to move move to the city, which yeah. is what Spiderbait did. Let's face yeah. it, you know, they, yeah, they, they, they knew each other in Finley, but they didn't form a band until they came to Melbourne. Finley, yeah, no, 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 that's right. Uh... Although in one of your upcoming books, which is, you know, as yet to be written about um, dogs in space, yeah. Ballarat does feature in Yeah, that so, is correct. But, um, well, thanks. We'll go to back in time to the uh, author talk at Clunes Book Festival. David talking Into with the Kier, TARDIS. Kia Reeves about his book, Big
Welcome, welcome along for our, for our session. Thanks, Jeff. We're, we're live. Um, we've just been serenaded by the Wesley Band with a medley of In Excess songs, so it's quite appropriate that we welcome David Nichols to talk about his new book, Dig Australian Rock and Pop Music, 1960-1985. David, I'll just, just begin with a broader conversational point, you know. What led you to write this book? What led me to write this book here? Thank you for asking and thank you for everything. Um, I was led to write it by a phone call I had with my publisher about 11 years ago where uh, he said to me, there's a lot of people in around the world who are familiar with various aspects of Australian popular music but they don't understand how it links together and that's the kind of, that was basically the commission. How does it link together as a, uh, you know, in Australia and you know, I guess the, it's the you know the one tenth of the iceberg that they see in other countries. You know what's what's going on below the surface, as it were. Yeah, rock and pop music, is, I guess, is a soundtrack to many people's lives, uh, for better or worse. Yeah. 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 Um, and you, you begin with 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 you know the beginnings of the 1960s. Can you tell us how you broke that down chronologically, besides setting up for a second volume? I, it was the original commission. The original idea was was. 50 years, a 50-year study, and I was kind of extrapolating. I guess it was around 2004, 2005 that I was originally asked to do it. So I thought it'll take me about five years to do it, and I'll finish in 2010, and I'll like you know write, I'll land appropriately right at the at the moment that uh, the book ends will be the moment that the book comes out. It was a stunningly naive. Uh, idea in many ways, and one was, of course, as you can see, what you what you've got there is a brick. I, um, Almost six hundred pages. Yeah, and it could have been a lot longer, of course. And so I um, very quickly I realised fifty years. You know, I couldn't do fifty years justice, uh, and I uh, so I figured that I'd go for volume one, twenty five years, and volume two is you know a, a future fantasy that may never transpire. And um, and so I, at a certain time, yes, I, I broke it down to that 25 years, and I, I guess I started in 1960, partly as a kind of uh, passive-aggressive stamping of my foot about there's no there's no proper time to start anyway. So I could have started in 1920, really. It's really uh, you know there's no there's no there's no right time to start, uh, but the 60s, I guess, was is a time that I figured my my perceived audience would be interested in and I was railing a bit against that idea of 1956 as the birth of rock and roll because if for no other reason than um, my friend uh, and uh, quite a well-known writer Clinton Walker was at the time uh, constantly talking about finding the earliest Australian rock and roll record which I think he was going back to 1948 or 1949 and I'm like well you know it's it's one of those things that's too hard to know when to start, so mm -hmm. I just picked sure. a, a random moment. Well, you, you sort of start, I'm just sure suddenly you're talking about, obviously about Australian pop and rock, but you start with a little discussion about Percy Granger and then you move into the 60s and talk about people like the Bee Gees and yeah. you know, it's, you know, and the influence of the, of, of the US and the British invasion, but at the same time you're talking about a uniquely Australian response to rock and pop. Yep. Yes, and I figure, well, uh, you know, the, the Australia is um, part of the Western world, 
Percy Granger was undoubtedly born in Australia, lived most of his life in other countries and was sort of internationally famous, uh, not as a composer, but as a, um, you know, a performer. Uh, and his most famous piece of music is, uh, I think I describe it as faintly nauseating, a, uh, a piece of music called the English Country Garden, jaunty little thing. And, uh, but the reason that I was interested in Granger was partly because he was so experimental. He was, he was, very, he was very interested in experimental, mechanised music and there's you know, the, his kind of uh, robot machines, music making machines that he, uh, he created in the 40s, uh, are in the, some of them are in the Granger Museum. So, you know, he's a, he's a world player. He was also, he really struck my fancy partly because he was so interested in modern music, like right up till his death, and he'd go and see rock and roll movies. I don't know how old he was when he, I can't remember how old he was when he died. He was in his 70s maybe. And he'd go to the movies and see rock and roll movies because he, he, he kind of gelled in some way with that stuff. Um, as far as people like the Bee Gees are concerned, you know, Australia made them. And yes, they came from the UK, so did many, you know, many people came from other parts of the world, came here and being placed in the, you know, the melange, uh, or perhaps the blancmange, they, they made it, they, it made them and they made, you know, something uh, unique. They had the opportunities here, which they probably wouldn't have had in uh, Manchester or on the Isle of Man, for God's sake. Mm. And does the other bands for that era, just stick with the 60s for a moment, what struck you about, you know, Little Patty or Yeezy Beats and those sort of acts? I hesitate to, to talk about um, people being, you know, founded in a crucible of a solid live circuit because I, you know, I'm, I think that that's, that's possibly a little bit uh, of a, a subjective viewpoint, although I know it does come up a lot and I can see, I mean, from my own experience, you know, going to the UK in the mid-80s, uh, having, being, having a very blasé attitude myself about uh, the, the ability of bands to play live and seeing some of the bands that I saw in the UK in the mid-80s who absolutely, without a doubt, could not play live to save their lives. Um, I guess there is, you know, from my own experience, some element of truth in that. So I guess that's one thing that I'm saying. Think about people like uh, the Easy Beats are a great example of, you know, they just play, they could just play all the time. You could actually, apparently, you could do that. Um, bands like The Loved Ones, apparently, like they, they do... They do tours of Melbourne, you know, every weekend. They play three shows a night in three different locations. And, you know, it, it uh, ultimately probably killed them as a band, but it, uh, while, they were, while they were going, they, they were actually getting plenty of work and plenty of uh, opportunity to, you know, hone their chops, so to speak. So that's one, that's one thing. Uh, I think that it's one of the things that I return to again and again in the, in the book, and it's, yeah, it's sort of about music, but it's also just about uh, Australian culture generally, that, you know, we always know what's going on, whereas, you know, if I, I'm just going to pluck a place out of the air and denigrate it without necessarily really knowing much about it, but, you know, in Tennessee, to, as a totally random place, they know a lot about what happens in Tennessee, but they don't necessarily know what happens in, in the rest of the Western world, and they don't think about it that much. We, we often put ourselves down in this country and have done for decades or centuries as being provincial, but you know, we are actually very cognizant of the rest of, uh, the rest of the world a lot of the time. And maybe we get that information you know, six months later, but we get it and we, 
co-opt it and we we make something of a response of our own. Yeah, just, and just just on sort of moving on a little bit from there, we, we, when you were writing the book, you, there's little breakouts. Well, there's chapters really of, of various bands, and I noticed that some of them have massive success. The Easy Beats, ACDC. <laughs> Others, such as the Moodist, you probably know Claire Moore and Dave Graney from later acts, or Pip Proud, one of your first loves, these sort of acts. They're, they're not as well known, but they still have a major contribution to make. So how did you go about just choosing who to put in as the, as the breakout, if you like? Yeah, and, the, and that's, it's a good question, and the breakouts are... Uh, they, were, they were troublesome. Um, I chose them largely because I thought they were individual acts that enabled me to make a, a larger point. So the, the biggies, uh, you know, I don't, have a, I don't have a breakout chapter on Nick Cave, I don't have a breakout chapter on In Excess, and I can't even think, you know, the other... Uh, I do have one on ACDC, which, uh, between you and me, was, I believe, at the insistence of my publisher. But um, well, when I say between you and me, I guess between you. <laughs> um, and... Uh, so, so largely, that was the idea. It was about it was about making a point, uh, es establishing someone or so, uh, an act or a, an individual who was actually doing something interesting that advanced the whole, uh, you know, advances the narrative and advanced the progress of the you know, the cultural, uh, you know, the, the zeitgeist. You mentioned the zeitgeist, and the book talks about this amazing outburst of creativity in Australian music. Do you just want to sort of expand upon that? Because I thought that runs through the whole theme, and mm. it dances through it, if you like, excuse the pun. And, um, and you know, that's essentially the main, main point you're driving at. Please, please go on. <laughs> I'm just, well, in the, we were talking about this, this moment that, it, that there's so many you know, acts that are so successful, bands, for a very long period of time. Yeah. And I'm just really wondering why you think it happens. Uh, yeah, look, I think it's, it's partly, as I said, it's, it's, it comes from uh, a few things. Well, it comes from a few things. And one thing is that thing I mentioned, that we, we or they, uh, have been aware of, of what, what's been going on in the rest of the world. And they have much more... Um, you know, a, a bigger palette to draw on for for styles and and things to react to. Um, I think also, I mean, there's some there's some pretty um, straightforward ones about this country, uh, wealthy country. Um, I um, so people have expendable income. Uh, very quickly embrace that notion of the teenager uh, in in this country. That so there was this kind of market for music. Uh, there's been uh, a Oh, there's a, been a relatively, even though, once again, we kind of put it down, but there's been a, a relatively developed media, particularly uh, radio, but, you know, Australians embraced television straight away and television needed content. Uh, so all of that kind of stuff. So there's, you know, I think that's one of the things about the Bee Gees, which is a, which is a great thing that people don't think about, you know. I, personally, I don't believe that, um, you know, there are talented people who just... You know, roaming around waiting for waiting to be exposed to uh, the you know the, an audience. I think that it's it's a it's a situation where the Bee Gees are a great example. You know, they had the they had access to the to the means of uh, of recording and and working in the studio all the time, or as much as they wanted. Um, you know, they had um, a, an extraordinary 
from a report studio out the back of a butcher's in Hurstville that where they were able to uh, to create as much as they wanted and so you know there's there's all of these these elements of you know a a reasonably affluent society a strong media a hungry media and and there's always stuff to respond to yeah just moving on that that note there's um there's it's a story also of producers, managers, the industry, venues, the thumping tum, yeah. all th and the uh, provincial flavours. Uh, you talk about a, an Adelaide scene earlier in the book, the role of Melbourne. We yeah. see echoes of that even in the Port Ferry scene or now. Yeah. Yeah, just, it's more than just the bands, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So venues are really important as well. And um, we have places in... Uh, we have all kinds of places available. And something else that I've done quite a bit of work on. There's a lot of... A lot of facilities. There's a lot of uh, amenities. There's a lot of places that are that can be filled or are ready to be filled. It's really uh, extraordinary how how many options there have been and still are to an extent. And just a few a few of the, the chapters. Could you tell us about a few of your favourite ones to write. Did, did Dragon really float your boat, or were there? Other I love the Dragon chapter, and and I had um, I was lucky enough to uh, talk to a few. Well, at least one person, the founder member of Dragon, who uh, died uh, a couple of years after I talked to him. Uh, so there's there, you know, there's there's some good good material Sorry, there. Who, who was that, David? Um, well, thank you for asking, Kira. I'm trying to remember his first name was Graham. I can't remember his second name. <laughs> Sorry, my but, apologies. Uh, but uh, so there's there's that that kind of stuff, and uh, there's yeah. I mean, I had I had access, and I had. Uh, I really enjoyed, you know, getting under the skin of that one. I, I enjoyed the reels chapter. I enjoyed, uh, I enjoyed writing the Pip chapter because I had access to a whole lot of letters that he wrote, which I think, kind of, you know, when I knew Pip, he was fairly um, diminished. His memory was diminished, not his spirit, but his. Um, he couldn't really recall much of what happened in the '60s, but he, um, he certainly, you know, there was this. Uh, there was this correspondence that really was really interesting. You know, even if you don't care about him, it's really interesting because it 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 shows how he sees himself in the music industry potentially, and and the people that he needs to know. He's going to hitch to uh, Brisbane and speak to Ivan Damon, who was a well-known uh, manager and, and record label operator in in Brisbane, and that was his. You know, so Pip had located Damon as this kind of. This this guy that he needed to needed to meet that kind of stuff. So you know they're they're all in their own way interesting. And most of those breakout chapters I think are could almost be books in their own right, and they're they're pretty amazing stories. But of course it's like all these things. It's frustrating to streamline a story. You know, as a historian, it's frustrating to streamline a story because you know that, to a certain degree, it's the it's the little jagged, weird bits that are the the really fascinating bits, and you have to set set up the 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 main scaffold before you start exploring that. I don't know how successful I was with that, but uh, you know, it's, nevertheless, those uh, those woe to go often slightly the stories of failure to a certain degree are the. Are the, were the satisfying ones to write um, narratively because they, you know, they have a, a nice end. They have a not nice. They have a neat ending. So mm. that's uh, that's really that's handy. Whereas the BGS, 
you know, I have to go, okay, the BG's, you know, the BG's story, as far as I'm concerned, ends when they move to Florida and they stop talking about themselves as Australians, which they did all through the 60s. Uh, and then, um, so then you can say, okay, well, that's, that's that. What happens in the 70s? So then I think of Eagle Rock and Daddy Cool, Chain, um, who would have, did everyone see the Sikhs becoming so huge in the 60s and 70s? Or? What becoming huge, sorry? The Seekers. The Seekers. The Seekers were huge in the 60s. Yeah. 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 Um, and, yeah, that's, and that's one of the interesting things uh, to me about this whole thing is that um, the Seekers were, I mean, I think for a long time they were seen as something of an embarrassment um, because of the nature of what they did, the way they sounded. Uh, so they tended to be minimised. So people oh, forget. Phenomenally successful. I'm so unbelievably successful in the thirty million records. Yeah, um, amazing how how many records they sold, and uh, yeah, you know, not forgotten, but not not considered, you know, as being as being part of the the story in a way. Yeah. And how does the scene change in the nineteen seventies? I guess it. I guess it. One of the things that happens in the 70s, I think, is you start to get uh, the audience, it's the audience that changes in a way. The audience gets, some of the audience gets older. There's still the young people coming up who want to hear, you know, new music. But there's also uh, people in their 20s who are um, still interested in, in what's going to happen. So you get a, a bigger audience. Um, the older people might be uh, more into albums and albums are... Skyhooks, these sort of... That's right. Yeah. And albums are a better bet financially for a record company. You make more money off an album. So there's that, that kind of aspect to it. So it becomes, it becomes a bigger deal, I think. Uh, festivals, so it's not just, you know, going to some arena or some small club in the late 60s. It's, it becomes, you know, three-day festivals, um, that, that kind of thing. Where there's a whole lot of didn't, diversity. Wasn't Sunbury massive? Didn't even Queen play Sunbury with Billy Thornton? Yeah, what, yeah, but they weren't big no. at the time when they when they played Queen. No, notoriously, Queen were, were booed off stage uh, and vowed to never come back to Australia. And then had a number one hit in Australia and and said, "Are oh, you yeah, actually? We meant we wouldn't come back until we were number one." <laughs> and, uh, and they came back. Yeah. And yeah. uh, just moving along, I'm sorry to be so linear, but no, I but, like it. But uh, the closer you get, it's sort of more living memory. People can remember the bands more as they're a bit younger. How did you go writing writing the 1980s and the early 80s? You know that is tough. Yeah, I mean I know that you're you're younger than me by something like 10 years probably. But um, when you start to deal with things that you have personal memories of, it gets really tough. And of course, well, I mean, personal I, friendships, I imagine, as well. Well, there's a little bit of that, but yeah, yeah, yeah a little yeah, bit. Yeah. But you know, I'm I, so I'm 52, so I had, um, I mean, of course, I was I was reasonably au fait with popular music in the mid from the mid 70s onwards. I, you know, I watched Countdown, I suppose, probably from its beginnings, um, almost you know, more or less to its end. You know, so that kind of thing. So I, um, but when you're a kid, you know, you you misremember things or you. You interpret things in weird ways, and it's really hard to not to to stop that from uh, affecting the way that you tell a story. Particularly if you want to be very true to the to the documentary evidence. Uh, so I, I 
I found the 80s in particular was, you know, when I was like, I guess, you know, this, this is not my story in a sense, but in another sense it kind of can't help but be uh, a, a story of stuff that, that affected me in my, uh, in my life as a sort of, you know, a fan or an enthusiast or a, an interested party. So uh, the 80s, it starts to get difficult, yeah. And I, I start to, uh, it starts to infuse, be infused with my own uh, memories of, of things and the way that people talked about things at the, at the time. I'm talking about difficult things. Um, where, where are the women and, and Aboriginal performers? I mean, you, you read, they're in here, they are, but, <laughs> but, but I'm thinking of, thinking of Jimmy Little, he's the thing you claim in your writing in the earlier times of the yeah, industry. Yeah. He was really, he was cutting a, cutting a path. But, um, and you comment on, you, you, this is obviously a bit of a Dorothy Dixon, but where are they? Yeah, well, look, the Aboriginal performers, that's a tough one. And there aren't, uh, you know, look, it's a popular music. So Jimmy Little was a popular performer. There aren't a lot of popular Aboriginal performers. There are, you know, I mean, there's, you know, Lionel Rose has a, has a hit record in, I think, 1969 or 1970, which is, uh, in a way, bizarre. It's almost like a novelty record. He's, you know, I think he can play guitar, but he's not known, you know, he's not famous because he's a, uh, a singer. So there's there's those kinds of elements that are really interesting and, and unusual, and they speak, of course, to uh, white Australia's, uh, unfortunately, somewhat temporary, I would say, embrace of Aboriginality in the late 60s. Um, but so there's that. Where are the where are the women? Is well, you talk about little Patty, and she's obviously could have been a brain surgeon. Well, so she she says that's what her parents uh, had hoped for. And little Patty, I think, is a, is a really smart person. There's a lot of those people, of course. I mean, a lot of those people are really smart. It's one of the interesting things: the women and the men, who are, I think, um, in some ways, you know, popular music was their downfall. They could have done something. Uh, you know, maybe in many instances they did something amazing creatively, but they could have done something amazing, you know, in a job that uh, might have might have been more ultimately more fulfilling than the you know the trials and tribulations of um, being a, a celebrity or a popular performer. But um, so the the women, I mean, I do say in there, and I, this is something that I feel bad about, but I didn't know how to deal with it. There's there's a lot of um, pop singers, female pop singers, who come through the rank don't really have hit records. But they seem to be, you know, um, it's almost as though they say, yeah, I'll, I'll try this lark for a couple of years, you know, doing covers or whatever, singing in front of a band, and they don't, uh, they don't make a, a big impact in the long term. They probably get television work and so on. There's, there's men who do that as well, so I'm not, it's not just a, a thing, it's not just a female thing, but it's still a, uh, it's, a it's an odd anomaly that was difficult for me to deal with. I mean, I guess... To a certain degree, I'm I'm hooked on the the legend of uh, people who write their own songs who have some kind of vision for how they want to present. And uh, you know, there are a lot of a lot of people who are just sort of drift into performing uh, and you know looking good and, and so on. And uh, you know, don't necessarily have a huge amount of substance. That said, there are women in the book who, uh, from the 60s onwards, who really do make a massive difference and of course the Seekers as you know the biggest Australia's biggest export of the of the 60s I would say um, at least until the BGs come along uh, is led 
essentially by a Judith, woman, Judith Durham. Yeah. Judith Durham. Yeah. So, you know, there's that kind of that kind of thing. It's um, they they are there, but just it's just uh, a sign of the '60s and and '70s and '80s and '90s and today that uh, you know they're often they're often minimised. And I guess history, I'm in two minds about it. I mean, I do I do locate women. Uh, you know, there's a there's a woman who you know very very obscure. Uh, sing, folk singer, I guess, called uh, Megan Sue Hicks, who was actually an American who came to Australia in the late 60s, early 70s, recorded an album, went back to America. Uh, I don't think anyone even told her that the album had come out. You know, she was... But she had a... I located her. She had a fascinating outlook on the scene at the time. She was very young. She was like 19 or something um, in the in the late 60s. And, and uh, those people... You know they have a they have a presence and they have a they have input. Um, they don't necessarily hang around a really long time. I'm just going back to dragon for a moment, just to mm. jump jump ship a little bit. Yeah. Um, New Zealand band um, people claim Crowd House to be Australia, New Zealand or just a St Kilda band. Depending. Um, what's the New Zealand and you, there's a number of other acts I'm thinking of as well. What's the New Zealand connection? Well, I guess I'd have to say, to a certain extent, I don't care. Um, I'm, you know, I'm not very, I'm not a very patriotic person, and uh, just as the, the Bee Gees came from the Isle of Man, uh, if New Zealanders come to Australia and make their, you know, make their presence known here, or in the case of Dragon, I mean Dragon, yeah, New Zealanders sometimes claim Dragon, Dragon thought of Australia as a stepping stone to the wider world, but they were too messed up on drug, or some of them were anyway, too messed up on drugs to get any further, and and they had they started having hit records in this country, and so they, they just hung around. Uh, so, yeah, they're totally, um, in one sense, not an Australian band at all, but it's, uh, they only had hits in Australia, and... You know, I guess if they'd been from France and they'd come to Australia and done the same thing, sure, I'd be sure. like, yeah, sure. I mean, it's it's really about it's about that milieu, it's about that uh, you know the cultural mix in uh, in this in this nation. Yeah. And there's a lot of New Zealanders in there. My my thing here, which I didn't actually end up having uh, too much. I mean, this was my my plan was to make uh, my prime informants were going to be the drummers the women and the New Zealanders uh, because I figured that they were the kind of, they were outside but inside at the same time and they, they had an eye on what was going on. Uh, they could see what was going on. You know, I did have two major uh, New Zealanders uh, in Brian Peacock and uh, Mike Rudd as people who, you know, in, in both cases I think they, they talk about their first impressions of coming to Australia, why they wanted to come to Australia, they'd done everything they could in New Zealand uh, Australia was the next step. I mean, in, in Brian Peacock's case, he did then go on to um, to other parts of the world. He went on to, to London for a while. Uh, in Mike Rudd's case, I'm not entirely sure why, but, you know, I think he had the curse of the hit single in a way, so he was like, mm -hmm. he was like well, I'm, I'm successful here, so I'll, I'll stay here and continue to be successful. That kind of thing. David, 
it, it's a it's a very big big book, you know. It's almost six hundred words. One thing pages of it. But um, one thing that struck me was that you spoke to so many people, or and, and just talk a little bit about the interviews and mm. talking with people, dealing with people. I know we've already spoken a bit about this, but I yeah. found it really fascinating. Yeah, and I I was often in two minds about the value. You know, you have to like. Well, I mean, you know, we've. You've done you've done oral history stuff. You know you you, you look at um, there's a there's a good time to get people in the, a good time in their lives to get people. I don't mean a time of day. There's a good time to get them, and there's a bad time to get them. And you you can um, you know I always thought that with my first book, which was the book about the go betweens, I got them absolutely at the right time. It was like two years after they'd broken up, and they all still hated each other. But they knew enough to know that there was a legacy that they um, they were had to contribute to, and so it was kind of like uh, it was just the right time to, to talk to those people. But um, it's not doesn't necessarily have to be about hate. Um, it, it's just some people they they there is they're adequately aware of their own legacy that they they want to talk in anecdotes. Uh, they want to talk in terms of influences, which I'm. I'm often a little bit um, uncertain about the veracity of, of that stuff. So you can, you know, no, obviously sometimes you can have good interviews and have bad interviews. There are people that I wish that I'd spoken to. There are also people who I spoke to and then I read their testimony from the time, uh, you know, from the 70s uh, or whatever. There was a magazine called Planet and a, a writer called Lee Dillow who, um, Dillow did a lot of, like I think it must have been it was certainly early in the in the scheme of like writing Australian rock history, and he interviewed people in the early seventies about their experience in the sixties, and that is perfect because they're like they're talking about stuff that happened six years, five or six years earlier, and they're talking about um, this. They're still discussing it in the in the you know as recent past that hasn't yet been you know ossified in any way by. Um, by, by time or legend, and so it's that's wonderful. Whereas when you get, you know, I spoke to Billy Thorpe, uh, I guess five years before he died, and I mean, problematized by the fact that he he published two memoirs that were sort of sensationalized, but he was totally unwilling to admit that he you know he made stuff up. So that made it difficult. But, you know, I guess what I'm saying is Billy Thorpe talking to Lee Dillow in 1972 about his career in the 60s rings much, much more true to me. I'm not, I don't want to um, diminish the legacy of the great Billy Thorpe, but, um, you know, rings much more true to me than the kind of, you know, Mr. Showman of the early uh, 21st century, yeah. A, plugging a book, and B, kind of, he's probably forgotten a lot, of, a lot of that stuff and he's making it up. Yeah, sure, sure. How about we just haven't talking going back to more recent times? You, the, the the sort of one of the key chapters is the the modern song, the early to mid eighties. What's changing then? What what really struck you about that era? Yeah, that's that's a that's a really really interesting time. One of the things that um, I've just done this year is uh, you know just to plug something else. Um, that's peripherally connected. I compiled a uh, an album of electronic Australian electronic pop music. It's called Closed Circuits. It's coming out next month. And um, 
one of the things that you know musically is interesting is the kind of the co-option of the electronic element synthesizers into uh, into pop music, and I, I kind of tracked that as best I could with those my selection of songs on that um, that compilation. So there's that. There's the technology. I guess is is what I'm saying. That's part of the thing. Um, there are. It is a time when, you know, uh, women can actually be performers, and also closed circuits reflects this as well as a third of the tracks are by women uh, with women singing and and perform uh, playing instruments. Um, so that a band like The Numbers, for instance, from Sydney, who come about in the, you know, they start releasing records in 1980, they exist for about three years, they're not staggeringly successful. But, uh, you know, Annalise Morrow is a, is a fabulous figure in that band because she's, she, she is the singer, she's also the bass player. Um, and she's, you know, she's not, um, she's not a silly, you know, um, Moppet or whatever. She's um, and she's you know she she will play with the, the idea of glamour, but she's not a um, you know she, it's not frippery, if you know what I mean. So there's a I guess there's that that element of it as well in the in the early eighties. Uh, you know the, I suppose that new wave. You know we can look at it now as in with all kinds of perspectives, but one of the things that it really did do was press a reset button to the degree that even if you were a an established musician, you still have to take notice of, of the technology and the um, the various uh, requirements of of the new sound of the new scene. Yeah, yeah. And Dave, was there any sort of song that really sort of um, stood out to you? You you, know, you tell a story of you had to of of um, Russell Morris and the real thing, but are there others that you you can think of? That, uh, that you found interesting to, to write about or sort of capture some essence. And I'm not trying to say that you talk about the Triffids or something like that, but that springs to mind. Was oh, you mean an Australian... Yeah. An, an essence of australian yeah. which I think the real thing doesn't do at all. I mean, the real thing is is an, an Australian attempt at a global epic record, and I don't think it has any particularly Australian aspect to it. Um, one of the songs that always dazzled me was um, Smiley by Ronnie Burns, which... Uh, Johnny Young wrote for Ronnie Burns about Normie Road going to Vietnam. And I mean that is that's fascinating. It's not really it's a you know, it's a political song and that is it's really interesting to hear something that is, you know, almost you know, it's not lounge music, but it's it's mellow. Uh, and it's not it's not necessarily a protest song either. And it's not like, you know, we've got to stop this happening. But it is uh, absolutely registering the moment. You know, that's uh, even though it's about Normie Rowe, it's it is about Normie Rowe being drafted into the into the army to go and fight in Vietnam. It is also a uh, something that could happen to you know it's it, it, it's the tempo of of the of the moment in Australia. So that's one that's one thing. A, a uniquely you know that search for an Australian sound. I mean, you mentioned the Triffids. That makes sense. You know, uh, Cadillac and Kane, the Go Between song. Those things, I think, um, those things do fit that fit that bill to to an extent. I think uh, also uh, records like Eagle Rock. I think uh, the the very you know the unashamedly Melbourne element of Skyhooks. I mean, these are these are things that I'm not not being original by bringing these up, but these these totally uh, work for me as. As examples, 
uh, I think that there are probably a lot of you know more low-key independent records in the late 70s and early 80s that also um, you know make their mark and that but the lighthouse keepers spring to mind as a as a band that uh, were trying I suppose to be anti-technological in a sense and their dream was to record an album with one microphone in the room uh, a dream which they were unable to achieve but you know that's that kind of stripped back simplicity that looked at a kind of a pre pre-rock time and maybe like the folk like the folk scene in the 60s in England was maybe trying to reference uh, an earlier uh, Australian folk scene without being um, hokey about it yeah thanks thanks and what, what about writing the history did you write it as a fan or as a historian or as someone who wanted to be a muso or a bit of all of this and did that sort of impact on the sort of book you did? Like I know in another life you're an urban historian and yes. there's some really interesting discussions about place and yes. bands and venues and scenes. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm, I don't think of myself as an urban historian in another life. This is, that is my life. All right, parallel, sorry, sorry. No. Well, it's, you know, it's like 99.5%. Um, yeah, so what I think... I don't know about you, as a, as a, how you how you write stuff, but I find that, and I found this, I found this very useful when I was doing my PhD twenty years ago. That if you get annoyed about what other people have done, so you could just like I wouldn't call it anger, but just being pissed off about what other people have done really helps you. Um, you know, you do kind of you end up writing away and going, yeah, this will show that. I got a, um, I got an email yesterday from a musician about. So, uh, uh, about something else, not about this book, but about um, about that compilation. And she wanted to make sure that she, as a woman, was getting an adequate representation in this uh, compilation. You know, and I was I was totally on board with that. I think it was a very valid question for her to ask. And then she referenced another mu a music journalist, uh, older than me, been around a lot longer, a lot more famous than me, a lot more established. And you know, I sort of it, it reminded me that. This particular person's work was something that I'd always been against. I'd always, um, you know, always thought he was a lazy, a lazy writer, and I'm, and I feel like I'm not a lazy writer. And um, I, you know, do you know what I'm saying? Sure, sure. I kind of, you know, it's it's a little bit of, it's. I wouldn't call it anger, but but maybe that maybe I'm being passive aggressive about that as well. But I think it's it's more just like, you know, it's kind of an I'll show them kind of attitude. You know, those people are wrong, those guys are wrong. And you know, I think that's it's the best way to advance advance yourself. Um, that's that's the kind of fuel that keeps you going. Yeah. Were you were you writing for an Australian audience, or were you seeing this as something that sits along in a global discussion about rock and pop? It's a, it's a, you know, if you like, it's an Australian chapter in a bigger story. I hope that it's a global. Uh, I hope it's of global. And that, use. is that what the publisher hoped for? That's what the publisher hoped. The publisher's American. Um, they, they were hopeful of getting a, um, uh, you know, they wanted me to pitch to an international audience with a proviso, or, you know, the understanding that Australians are always used to reading about, you know, Australia in this kind of global way. Um, once again, you know, in the way that um, the, the people of Tennessee wouldn't necessarily go for, but the people of, of Australia, generally speaking, understand uh, that they're a small, it's a small population and... Uh, and it needs to be explained. And I think a lot of Australians enjoy 
reading Australian things explained to other people. Uh, so it was, you know, I have no idea what the um, what the sales story is overseas. I mean, I know it's available overseas, uh, and I'm hoping that it um, that it, you know, has has value. And that was certainly that was my. I think I say it um, somewhere. Actually, sorry, it was in a, uh, an interview that I did a few months ago, which just came out. So I read it, so it seems fresh. Um, I said I had a mythical Norwegian in my head, wondering why Nick Cave sang a song at Michael Hutchinson's funeral. Because if you're from another country, you're like, in excess, Nick Cave? What What is the connection between, you know, aside from the fact that they're both Australian... I think Kylie's the connection, isn't she? Sorry. <laughs> you're absolutely correct. Kylie was the, Kylie's the connection. You're quite right. Yeah, I'd forgotten about that. See, see that that shows that's how your mind works, not mine. But I know I'm talking about. No, it is how my mind works too. But uh, I, I'd forgotten that at that point. But anyway, the the um, yeah. So the sure, sure. So there's a kind of a you know as I said that 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 tip of the iceberg thing. There's like there's a few acts who are known, and one of the great things is that you know if I did my job adequately which I'm not I'm not totally unhappy with how it came out um, people in other countries can they can sit down as I have done with um, there's a great book uh, called yeah 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 um, that is a sort of a British history of, of pop music uh, and you go through it and you go god that record sounds amazing I'm gonna have to check that out and people can do that now they can look things up on YouTube you know so frequently and they can hear all kinds of of uh, amazing uh, stuff that they would never otherwise be exposed to. So a book like this wouldn't have worked uh, as, as nearly as well ten years ago because you could say to someone in you know my hypothetical Norwegian, you know this band was amazing, and they would go well you know so you say, but you know I'm not willing to invest uh, you know eighty krona in buying a uh, a copy of their album, so, you know uh, online. So you know. Or, or however, so you know it's a it's a good time to be uh, publicising or discussing Australian music uh, globally. Yeah, and maybe on that note, we could throw it to the the the, the, the group, and people might want to come up and ask a question and view David or comment. I I know you've had a lot of people contacting you with various complaints or thoughts on your book um, or interpretations can I invite anyone else who's got a question who wants to say something there's a microphone just up the front yeah or you might want to come and join us whatever's easiest come and sit on the table if you want yeah. or you can just go look it's really on your cold, it's, it's, a it tough, it's a tough gig and if we do move we do feel warmer I promise all right uh, maybe straight into the mic Liz. So just okay thank you child of the uh, child of the 60s Grew up in Sydney, walked around the hostel, the Easy Beats. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'll tell you one thing about the Easy Beats, the payment of Soundlands back in the 60s, they were booed off stage. Right. They could not play the instruments. And of course, when they went to the studio recording and all that, they had musos recording their, uh, playing their instruments. Uh, but they did sing. <laughs> They're good records anyway, that's all I can Yeah, they were. Yeah. Yeah, you know, uh, plus, uh, uh, that whole era of, of the 60s, I grew up in Sydney, yeah. Billy Thorpe at the uh, 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 Team Ranch and other places like that, you know. And uh, yeah, so it really brings back a lot of good memories. Yeah. And uh, so 
You have now convinced me that I will buy the book. <laughs> okay. Yes, excellent. Thanks, Les. <laughs> Great. So, anyone else got a question for David or a comment? Um, or David, you want to add something? Um, I do I want to add something? I think that um, it was... You know, it's a, it's a, it's a very, it was very gratifying getting that thing out. It's been ten years in the conceptualising and creation, and yeah, there's, it's one of those things. It's, it's kind of fraught. You know, there's, there are going to be uh, errors, and you know, people aren't going to uh, agree with you, and uh, you simultaneously, I suppose, if you put yourself out there, then you relish that challenge, and you also. Um, are a little bit scared of, um, or particularly scared of making you know, major errors. Uh, but on the whole, um, I'm pretty pleased with how it's gone. And, and one of the things that I really wanted to make a thing of, and I say it right at the end, I know you haven't read to the end yet, Phil. Um, the last page, there's something something like, which, which I have to confess, comes out of going, oh my God, I've got no idea how to end this, you know, apart from the end and in um, 38 point font um, is sort of saying well uh, hopefully this inspires people to do other you know similar work and that's what I really that's all I really want to see I, I'm um, totally happy with uh, with someone you know shooting this thing down in flames um, you know I just hope they, they take a good decade to do it to do their um, rejoinder uh, as uh, mm -hmm. as it took me to do the original and that is of course my other um, that's my comeback, which is um, doesn't come out of um, hostility at all. But uh, I find that um, you know people are keen to tell me that um, about things that are um, you know where they think that my emphasis was was wrong or whatever. And, and I always say, well, I'm looking forward to your book. And I don't say it with hostility. I say it with you know I'm really looking forward to seeing more things come along like that that engage. With, with things that are raised in there. On that on that note, what about is it going to be a volume two? Oddly enough, I just in the last couple of weeks I picked up. There was a, I don't know. Have you ever come across a band called Bughouse? No. Bughouse were uh, around in the late eighties, early nineties. Sydney band, two two women and two men, and uh, the main woman was uh, the main songwriter was a woman called Leah Cameron, and. Uh, I had not thought about Volume 2 at all until I picked up the Bug House album, the first Bug House album in an op shop for a dollar. And I was just like, for some reason it, it unlocked something and I was thinking, I was straight away thinking, okay, this is, you know, this is the beginning of my way into to Volume 2. Volume 2 is going to be like twice as hard as that uh, and it's going to be, it's really difficult writing about recent, uh, recent history, but... Um, yeah, I think that it's, you know, whether it's a story that, you know, it's a story that has that has to be told at some point. So, uh, yeah, I think that, um, you know, it's not going to happen overnight, that's for sure. But it, uh, I think it, it could ultimately take place. I mean, I've got, um, I'm planning on living to 100, so some, sometime in the next 48 years, yeah. <laughs> well, terrific. Um, David, any final sort of reflection or comment before we close the session and you go and sign some books down at the Reading's Den? Uh, 
no, thank you. I've got, I've got nothing more here. You've covered everything, and I really appreciate you uh, asking such insightful questions and and you guys for sitting here and, uh, you know, yeah, some of you are probably frozen to death, but, you know, yeah. Yeah, look, thank you so much. <laughs> but, yeah, absolutely. Um, everyone's got their arms cold. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, David, thank you so much. Look, just to recap, it's Dig, Australian rock and pop music, 1960 to 1985 on Verso Chorus Press. Uh, David, you don't mind selling a copy down at the Reading's tent just next to Red Dog Books? No, you know I'd be delighted. It might be behind us. Can I congratulate you? It is a wonderful book. Um, one thing that perhaps hasn't come out in our discussion today is it's actually there's a lot of humour in it and some of the stories you tell I find myself chuckling with guilty pleasure, situational humour, bands making it, being ripped off, underpaid, to paraphrase ACDC. Um, um, and you, you sort of capture the, the, the essence of the story. You know, you tell the story, but at the same time, you, the reader is led on a journey where they can have a laugh. And, and for my point of part, I've gone and sort of bought a few records or gone to Spotify, listened to stuff, and I found it just a wonderful guide and, um, to, to listen to, to rock and pop. And I suspect that's what you hope, and let's hope yeah. that um, has continues to have heaps of success. And you find out from your publisher just how many books you've sold. So yeah. can you please join me in, in thanking David, and uh, thank you all for braving the car. Thank you. Thanks, Pierre. Even though I, I do know how to, I could write with my eyes closed, but I feel like I need my glasses. No, on I understand that. So, Joe, yeah. mm -hmm. um, is there anything special about? No, I'm just really looking forward to reading the whole thing. Um, okay. Great passion for Australian music going back to more the pub 80s, but yeah. same age as you, but yeah, more the pub 80s. But no, just very much looking forward to reading it all. I thought the stuff you mentioned about the 60s was fascinating. <laughs> Okay, uh, <laughs> now, uh, so you can autograph that. What you can put down for me yep. is sex, drugs, rock and roll, best years of my life, to less. Best, best years of your life? My life, yes. <laughs> to less. Thank you very much. Uh, nice Thanks for coming here. Have you been here before? Yeah, I came here about four years ago. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. yeah we've, got a, we've got a weekend here. Okay. Um, the town's just grown. Yeah. And then this, this really helps. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is the only time I ever come here, so... The only time I've been here is the two times this mm. been, the two times I've been here, this has been on Friday. Yeah. Anything else about what it's like normally? Well, well, ten years ago, before we got here, it was a sleepy old town. Yeah, right. It's happening, but this has kept it along. So. Okay, nice to meet you. Yeah, yeah. Good to see you. Bye.